Well, we're in our last week of our series, Uncomplicating Christmas, and um, I want to help you uncomplicate Christmas this year, so I've done some extensive research, and I'm going to help you buy gifts for people who are impossible to buy gifts for. Does anybody have that person in their life that you just can't buy gifts? Okay. All right. My dad's one of those people, because if he wants anything, he just goes and buys it. So, in the spirit of Uncomplicating Christmas, here's what to buy for people who don't have, or for people who have everything already, okay? Your first option is you could go with something that's novel. So, I present to you the acoustic guitar fish tank. So, except for the person who has everything, I bet they don't have that. You know, if novel is not what you want, you could always go um, for the person that's impossible by gifts. So, you could just do what something that's a little more honest this year. A little honest. So, you could do... Uh, world's okayest brother t-shirt. That's, I think that's my sister's going to get me this year. <laughs> I did call her when she got engaged. It was like a month later, but I called her. And we celebrated. Okay, so, but if you don't want to go novel and you don't want to go honest, um, you could go useful. So, you, you, know that, you know that sometimes your hands get really cold so you want to wear gloves? But sometimes when you wear gloves, your hands get really sweaty, Right? So um, what you could do is you could just give them a useful gift. You could give them hander pants. I found these online. You could just give those to a friend this year. So you're welcome. You're welcome. I spent a lot of time on Google finding those for you. So uncomplicating Christmas. Okay, that was ridiculous. But here, here's, the, the point of the, here's the point of the series is that um, life is complicated, so Christmas is doubly so. Because if your family relationships are complicated, then when you get to the holidays and you all get together in the same house, Christmas is going to be complicated. And if your dating life is complicated, then when you get together on Christmas time or the holidays, uh, it's going to be even more complicated. Like, man, trying to buy a gift for a girlfriend or a boyfriend is just impossible. It's like, does this say I love you? Or does it say I like you? Or does it say like... Uh, I hope that we're not together next Christmas. You got you to figure out exactly what to do. You know, if you, um, and this is, I think, very real for a lot of people around Christmas time, is that if you sometimes feel alone throughout the year, then Christmas actually oftentimes doesn't make that better. It can make it feel worse. And even when you're around people, you can feel very alone. And so Christmas can be complicated. So what we wanted to do as a church really is to... Um, get to the core message of Christmas and kind of strip away all the complications and all the stress and get back to the most beautiful pieces, the most beautiful part of Christmas about Jesus and who he is and what it means for your life that God is with us and that God is for us. And that's what we're looking at. Now, over the last couple of weeks, um, we've seen that uh, the coming of Jesus means that God keeps his promises and that all you, although God might be saying not yet, that doesn't mean not ever. You know what I'm saying? We're saying? We saw how God keeps his promises. And when you look at the gift of Jesus, you can understand God keeps his promises. And if you're waiting and your life is kind of in that white space between the lines on the page, that God's not done with you yet. Last week, um, Ken Gilming, my father-in-law, um, he spoke on how Jesus is our, our Savior. How we need a Savior, what that means for us why we need it. This week, our final week of Advent, we're looking at Jesus the King. Why is it good news that Jesus is a king? 
What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us as a people that Jesus is the king that we all need? So what we're going to do is we're going to look in um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. So take out a Bible. The black Bibles on the seats nearby you should already be bookmarked with Matthew chapter 2 or pull it up on your phone or your own Bible. Um, I always bring a paper Bible with me. And uh, I know this is a little odd to say in in such a young church, but um, I've started this practice where as I, I, I've got one Bible, and as I read through it, I mark in it, and I underline things, and I highlight things, and I star things, because um, I want to give a Bible like that to each one of my children when they, when they go off to college, so that they have a Bible that their dad marked up. Because my, my grandfather's Jewish, and so I actually have his Bible that was printed in, like, it was printed before he was born, in like 1912 or something. It's the only thing I ever had from him because he passed away before I was born. And there's just a couple of verses in the Proverbs that are highlighted, um, that are underlined so I can see what my grandfather picked out of the scriptures and the word of God. So I like, I'm a bit of a Luddite. I like a paper Bible. But we're looking today in Matthew chapter 6, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Let me read to you the whole passage and we'll unpack what it means together afterwards. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So in this passage, we find the kingship of Jesus. Now, it's written by Matthew. The Gospels in the New Testament, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four authorized biographies of Jesus' life, authorized by God to tell the story and interpret the life of Jesus. Matthew was a guy who was a tax collector. He was generally hated by the public because he was a part of the evil world system of oppression and occupation of the Romans. And there's this great story where one day Jesus walks up to uh, Matthew who's sitting at his tax collector's booth in the Palestinian countryside. And he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up from his tax collector booth and he just follows Jesus. It's like, who's watching the shop? I, I don't know. I guess nobody. But Matthew completely turns his life around. He follows Jesus. He follows him around for roughly three years, and he he puts his feet in the same footprints of the Palestinian soil where Jesus did. And he he ate he eats the same food. And when Jesus breaks bread and passes it, he that's the bread that he's eating. And when Jesus is teaching these sermons, Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and it says he goes from town to town teaching. Matthew's hearing it over and over and over again. And, and what we know also, you've got to remember that this is, not the, this is not the era of social media or even of CNN, much less C-SPAN. And so what's happening is not that Jesus is giving a different sermon every week necessarily, but that he's teaching the same basic things over and over and over again to different groups of people. Over and over and over and over again. And every time Jesus teaches, Matthew is hearing this same kind of teaching every day of his life for three years. This Matthew who follows Jesus, becomes a disciple of Jesus, when he tells the story of Jesus' birth, 
when he collects these narratives of Jesus' birth, he paints him not just as a teacher, not just as a rabbi, but as a king. And to me, that's actually stunningly odd because Matthew saw Jesus crucified on a cross. I mean, what would compel you to look at that life trajectory and think, now there was a king? Something happens, and if you're, for Christians, we believe that, something to be the resurrection, where Matthew comes to believe that not only is Jesus a king, he is God's foreordained, God's forepromised king. And we see that in the text in, in three particular ways where he, he, the wise men come looking for a king. And I mean, if you're Herod and you're the king of the Jews and three men show up in your court and they say, hey, we heard a new king was born, where is he? That's got to make you a little uncomfortable. It says that he is going to be a ruler in verse 6, for, uh, speaking of Bethlehem, for from you shall come a ruler. And it says, he will shepherd my people Israel. And in the ancient Near East, shepherding is almost always associated with kingship. Not just in Israel, but in the surrounding cultures as well. You find that um, Cyrus might be called the shepherd of Persia or something like that, where kingship is synonymous with shepherding. So he's definitely highlighting the kingship of Jesus when he thinks of the baby. You know, I... It's hard for us to understand this parallel. First of all, because we are good, old-fashioned Americans, and we don't have a king. In fact, they wanted to make George Washington king, and he turned him down. So the closest thing we have to this is to look over to the British monarchy. You remember when, um, you remember when Kate and William gave, uh, Kate gave birth to their first son, Prince George? Boy, that broke the internet, didn't it? And they were on the cover of like People magazine and everything like that. And people were celebrating. Everybody was going crazy. Everybody was losing their minds. The whole point of that, though, was not that a baby was born. The whole point of that is that a future king was born. The incredible celebration was not about six pounds, eight ounce, the baby uh, Prince George. But it was that one day he would rule. One day he would be king. One day he would have power. And this is where the metaphor breaks down because it's the British monarchy, right? So they don't actually end up with that sort of power. But with the birth of Jesus, that's what you find happening. These men are traveling perhaps months and months, perhaps years, to get to this child who will one day rule with power. So the kingship of Jesus teaches us about the power of of Jesus. And then when you look at his life, you see the power displayed. Power over nature. There's this one story where uh, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat. And Jesus is in the back of the boat laying down with his head um, on a cushion. He's just asleep. And there's this huge storm. And there's wind and there's waves and there's thunder. And these are, don't forget, these are fishermen who live their whole life in the boats, but they are terrified. So this is one heck of a storm. And the wind is crashing, the waves are beating on them, and they wake Jesus up and they say, hey, come on, we're going to die. And Jesus, you know, um, well, you know, if it was me, I would kind of work myself up and I'd get down into the storm calming position, you know, and I would like work my magic or something. But Jesus just speaks. He says, be still. And the storm stops. He speaks to it. And here's the craziest part. 
the wind and the waves, they recognize his voice. Jesus has power over nature. Jesus, uh, according to the New Testament, has power over evil spirits. Man, something we don't talk about in Boston. Woo, things just got awkward in here. But that, according to the New Testament, you know, it's like there's supernatural explanations for evil in this world. And yet Jesus has power over that. That he would often speak to evil spirits and command them to come out. They would beg him not to just destroy them because Jesus had power over evil spirits. Jesus had power over disease. He had power to heal. There's one time where he's walking through a crowd and people are just crushing around him. I mean, they're they're literally just kind of smashing in on Jesus and the disciples. But one person, a, a woman who has had a bleeding disorder for years, which makes her not only sick, but also ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and an outcast from society, comes up and touches the hem of his robe on purpose. And it, it's, he says, like, healing power goes out from him. And she's instantly cured. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him like, dude, are you crazy? Like, everyone's touching you. Look around you. He's like, no, no, no. Someone touched me. And he heals the woman, and she's restored. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus has power. That's what a king has. You understand? Like, a king has power. Now, one of the important implications for us today in this is that a king is in charge whether you are on board with it or not. (laughs) We often celebrate uh, six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers without recognizing that he one day becomes the king who has power to rule over us. Um, He's the king whether you like it or not. You know, that's the idea behind kingship. You know, Trump uh, is the president-elect right now, and there's a lot of people. You see it in the news. You see it online. You know, people say, you know, he's not my president. You go, well, yeah, I understand the sentiment, but legally, yeah, he, he actually is. It's like looking at Jesus and saying, like, he's not my king. You're like, well, listen, I understand the sentiment, but actually, you know, like, if he's the king, he's the king. And, he, and because he demonstrates this with power over uh, nature and power over evil spirits and power over disease, like, the, the Bible's testimony is that he is the king. He is the king. And it's not so much to us to say, oh, I, I want to invite Jesus to be my king, as it is to us to say, wow, if Jesus is the king, I'd better submit to his rule and to his authority and stop being the kind of person that's like, he's not my king, a rebel in a kingdom, and instead say, uh, I'm going to submit to the rule of the true king. My favorite picture of this is Robin Hood. Um, I, I loved watching Robin Hood grow up. I watched the Disney version where Robin Hood's a fox. Anybody seen that one? Yeah, all right, all right. Millennial shout out, okay. Um, How about the Robin Hood with Kevin Costner? Any fans? Baby Boomer shout out. My mom's a huge Robin Hood fan when Kevin Costner's in it, man. She'll watch Robin Hood, The Bodyguard, you name it, she's watching it. So I watched that one a lot too. Um, In my more mature, mature years, I watched Robin Hood, Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks version. You know, Robin Hood, we all know the, the idea that he robs from the rich to give to the poor, but you got to remember the context in which it happens. You remember this? There's a true king named Richard who goes off to fight a battle and he's away. And 
in the absence of the true king, an imposter king named Prince John rises up and proclaims himself in charge. And it basically splits people into two groups. Those who recognize that the true king is away, but he's returning. And those who support the imposter king, Prince John. And when Robin Hood ends, you'll remember, it actually ends with the return of the king. And the king comes back and he says, where are my loyal and true subjects? And he rewards them. And he says, and then where are the rebels? And he punishes them. This is actually the picture. The reason that, I think the reason that Robin Hood resonates so deeply just as a story throughout the years is that that's, that's a picture of God. That's a picture of Jesus, the true king who is the king. And maybe you can't see him, but there are those who are living for him. And there are those who are living as rebels saying, that's not my king. And one day he returns. And so the fact that Jesus is a king, it reminds us that he has power, but it also reminds us that we must submit to him and follow his rule. Because one day he returns. So according to, according to Matthew, according to the Bible, Jesus is king. He's a king who has power. He's a king who returns. And lastly, I just want to talk about our main objection to receiving Jesus as our king. You know, in, in the West, in Boston, uh, but in Western society in general, the biggest objection to av- actually living like this is, to, to, is just simply to say, like, that's interesting, okay, that's great, but I, get to, I run my life. And I don't want anybody to run my life for me. I don't want anyone to make decisions for me. I don't want anyone to limit my freedom for me. I don't want anybody to make any decisions for me except me. That's our normative operating principle in Western society. If that's true, and I I think that that's pretty self-evident, why on earth do Christians let somebody else run their life? I mean, you understand that that is what it means to be a Christian. Is that like, I let Jesus make decisions for me. And I say, Jesus, what do you want? Not what I want. Like Jesus prayed, you know, he says, uh, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. And sometimes walking as a Christian just means saying, God, not my will, but thy will be done. And God, I I let you restrict my choices. I mean, how crazy is that to live in Boston in 2016 and to say to someone besides yourself, you can restrict my choices if you want to. Yet that's what it means to live as a Christian. And I willingly, I let God restrict my choices on uh, what kind of media I consume. If you're single, it's saying to God, you can restrict my choices on what kind of person I date. You know, if you're, if I'm, I'm married, so I let God restrict my choices on what kind of women I hang out with and are friends with outside of my wife. I do. And I don't want to downplay it like, hey, if you just pray a prayer and you ask Jesus to be your savior, life is going to be awesome. No, because we're talking about kingship and lordship here. But why would we do that? <coughs> Excuse me. And I think the answer to that question is that On a fundamental level, all of us understand already why we would do something like that. Because when you were a little kid, you let someone else run your life. You let your parents run your life. When you were a little kid, you did not have the wisdom you needed to make wise choices, and you didn't have the power you needed to carry them out. And so you depended on someone else to do that for you. You didn't choose what school you went to. You didn't choose what kids you got to hang out with. You didn't even get to choose what kind of pants you bought. Somebody else made all those decisions for you. I mean, now that, I, now that I'm on the other side of that and I have little children, I mean, they're tr- constantly trying to do the most insane things ever. You know, it's like 
there's not a day goes by that they're not trying to like stab something or cut something or like climb out of a window or I don't even know. When we're little kids, we let parents make decisions for us because they have the wisdom that we don't have and they have the power to carry it out. As human beings, we can look to Jesus to be the king over our life because he has the wisdom that we don't have. He has the power to carry it out. You know, the the wisest person who's ever lived is still a fool compared to God. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, is the way the scriptures put it. And so God makes decisions for our lives, seeing what we cannot see, knowing what we cannot know. And although those times, although those decisions may seem constricting or may seem painful or difficult for a season, yet he has wisdom that we do not possess. And God has the power and strength to carry it out. You know, I think the big hang up here is really not intellectual or rational. It's really emotional. It's terrifying to ask Jesus to be the king of your life or to submit your life, surrender to his kingship. But it would be easier if you could just know for certain that his wisdom and his power are directed towards you, not in anger or frustration or punishment, but his wisdom and power are directed towards you in love. In the same way that as a child, your parents' wisdom and power were directed towards you in love. And that's where we find that Jesus is, the cra- is just the most unheard of king who's ever lived. You know, every king who's ever lived, um, just about everyone has gone into battle, fought a war. And kings ask their subjects to die for them. They send them to their death. Maybe for the king, maybe a good king, maybe for a cause. But kings send their subjects to die. Jesus is the only king who dies for his subjects. We see it at the cross. Where he willingly gives his life. So that people who wanted nothing to do with him, who were rebelling against his kingship, could be, become friends and citizens of his kingdom. He's the king who gives up the riches of heaven to become poor on earth. He's the king who gives up the, the power that he has in heaven and trades it for poverty and homelessness on earth. When you see the cross, you see he's a good king. And when that truth melts your heart, you can willingly and honestly admit that you need to bow your knee to this king and join his kingdom. And that's, that's incredibly good news. Can I speak to those of you who struggle with anxiety and depression for a moment? I know 
we're not raising hands now, but I know that I know you're there. I got, I've been through those seasons in my life too, where um, I get overwhelmed in my life, and instead of tackling my to-do list, I want to stay in bed till like 1 p.m. When Jesus is your King, the pressure of running your own life is off. You don't have to make perfect decisions. You don't have to perform perfectly. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it all figured out because Jesus already has it all figured out. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and gather together the strength to just make it through another day and that if you have enough power and resolve and willpower, then your life will be okay because Jesus already has that power. Jesus has already decided that if you are in Christ, that your life eventually ends in victory. Now, no doubt there are going to be terrible struggles and trials along the way. I guarantee you that as well. But for those whose faith is in Jesus, eventually their life ends in victory. And that knowledge brings you out of anxiety and brings you out of depression to a place of dependence upon Christ. You understand, this is why the gospel is good news. Because when he is the king, he's the king and you, can, you don't have to be the king anymore. You can relax. You can rest. You can take a day off. You cannot get a promotion. You cannot get accepted to that school. You can flunk and fail your licensing exam. Jesus still loves you. He's still reigning and he's still the king. Now listen, <laughs> listen, this is good news to me because when I grew up in my family, I've, I've told you guys this before. If you get straight A's, you get dessert. If you get one B, you get a talking to. But Jesus is not demanding your performance and your perfection. He has the power and he has the wisdom. And when you bow your knee to him, you find grace and life and peace that's worth living. And the grind, the grind becomes joy. And so I, I personally, I think it is worth giving up anything this world has to offer. I think it's worth giving up any bit of personal freedom that I would cling to or hang on to because what you get in this life is joy and life and what you get in the next life is eternal life to boot. And so I make no, uh, I make, I, listen, I, I'm standing up here saying it is worth it to give your life to Jesus. To say you're the king, I'm not the king. You have a kingdom and I don't. And I need to bow my knee to you and join your kingdom and have citizenship in your kingdom. And I don't care what it costs me if I can have the life that you promise. And today might be the day for you to bow the knee to King Jesus. That day came for me when I was 17 years old. And um, I was, uh, my life wasn't a complete disaster, but I was doing my best to make it that way. And I eventually got to this point where I recognized that my sin and my rebellion against God was train wrecking my own life. And some of you are in the place today where you realize that your sin and your rebellion against God is train wrecking your own life. And the sort of shame and anxiety that comes out of that is making life almost unlivable for you. And if you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you towards Christ today, don't deny him. Instead, come to him and bow your knee to the king and find your citizenship in heaven. Because Jesus has died for your sins on the cross. And then he rose from the de dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. So you can follow a, a victorious living king, not a dead king. I'm going to ask you guys to pray with me now. And if today is your day to come to King Jesus, you can pray with me silently as I pray aloud.
Jesus, I recognize this truth that you are the king, that you have the power and wisdom that I don't have, the power that I lack, the wisdom that I lack. And your offer of salvation is beautiful in my eyes. I pray that you would forgive me of my sin. Of the, of the thousands of times when I've said, he's not my king. And I, I've lived according to my ways. I believe that you forgive me of my sin through your death on the cross. And I also believe not just that you died on that cross, but that you rose from the dead. So that I can have eternal life with you. And just as you'll, you rule and reign in victory, so those who are citizens of your kingdom will rule and reign in victory with you as well one day. God, I pray that you would include me in your kingdom. I place my faith in what Jesus has done. And I turn from my sin to live as a citizen of your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name today. Amen.